0: Both believed the Bible to be the true word of God. The Roman Catholic Church added to Scripture and also did violence to Scripture by making the Church the authoritative interpreter of it. Luther strongly supported sola scriptura by which he meant he would not believe anything that could not be proved from Scripture and he would believe anything taught in Scripture even though the Church denied it. It was this principle of biblical trustworthiness that led to the use of the second principle Sola fide man is saved by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church taught faith plus works. The scriptures taught faith plus nothing. Luther believed that salvation by faith plus works could not be proved from scripture, and he was equally convinced that salvation by faith alone could be proved from the word of God. On this he stood resolutely, but ever and always it was the scripture that brought the gospel and Christ to him. The Missouri Synod's Brief Statement The Missouri Synod, from its earliest beginnings, was not unaware of the implications of its Lutheran heritage. The people of this synod knew that Martin Luther was a man of his times, and they were discriminating in how they followed him. Neither Missouri nor other Lutheran groups have been happy about Luther's diatribe against the Jews or about the other crude things he said at times. But he was sound on the essentials and loved the word of God. The Missouri Synod learned one thing from Luther and from the history of the Christian Church. At any given time in the history of a denomination, one issue may surface that demands resolution. In Luther's day, his 95 Thesis and the Augsburg Confession are a fair reflection of the crucial issues he and the early Lutherans had to deal with. But those issues are dead today and others have taken their place. From its founding, the Missouri Synod held to an inerrant scripture. It was not then an issue in the denomination, for there was no dissent. Then came the fundamentalist, modernist controversy. The Missouri Synod was largely untouched by this controversy, but it would be a mistake to say that the controversy had no influence on the Synod. The influence was there, but the timing of it was delayed. Thus, Missouri is experiencing now what other large denominations experienced decades ago. By 1932, there was enough of a cloud in the sky to show that the Synod might have the beginnings of an infection that centered around the inerrancy of the Bible. In 1932, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, adopted a brief statement of its doctrinal position. In 1947, at the centennial celebration of the denomination, the brief statement was incorporated in the official proceedings of the convention. It was not made part of the Constitution along with the confessions contained therein. I have heard some argument effect that the brief statement contravenes the Constitution, that the Lutheran confessions do not require or teach that a person should believe in biblical inerrancy. Certainly, however, the brief statement did reflect the dominant views of the Synod, which understood that the brief statement did say what the confessions really say. The first article of the brief statement said thus, Number 1. We teach that the Holy Scriptures differ from all other books in the world in that they are the Word of God. They are the Word of God because the holy men of God who wrote the Scriptures wrote only that which the Holy Ghost communicated to them by inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21 We also teach that the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures is not a so-called theological deduction. But that it is taught by direct statements in the Scriptures, Second Timothy three sixteen, John ten thirty five, Romans three verse two, and First Corinthians two verse thirteen. Since the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God, it goes without saying that they contain no errors or contradictions. But that they are in all their parts and words the infallible truth, also in those parts which treat of historical, geographical, and other secular matters. John ten thirty five. 35. End of quote. Brettshire's case against inerrancy. For almost a century and a half, the Missouri Senate has been identified with this view of the Bible as the infallible Word of God in its entirety. Today the doctrine of biblical infallibility is being challenged, and many voices claim that the Bible is more like that described by Martin E. Marty, Unless like that enunciated in the brief statement of 1932. One of the best formulations of the basic issue in the Missouri Synod was advanced by Paul G. Brechner in his book, After the Purifying. His argument is worth studying. Brecher says the term, the word of God, is being used in the Synod, but points out that two different meanings are attached to it. The one meaning is that spelled out in the 1932 brief statement which says that all of the Bible is the word of God and all of it is without error. Bredsher differentiates as follows. For example, Article 2 of the Synod's Constitution declares that the Synod and every member accepts without reservation the Scriptures as the written word of God. But what do the members of the Synod have in mind when they hear and use that phrase, the word of God? To many, perhaps most, it means the inspired and inerrant scriptures, with God as the true author of every word. To a minority, however, the word of God means the Spirit's proclamation of grace in Christ to sinners, and the scriptures as the fountain and norm of that word. Bretcher continues his argument using the term dross from which the synod needs to be purified by giving to the phrase, the word of God, a different meaning from that attached to it by the brief statement. He distinguishes between the gospel and the scriptures. He says that for the believers, in inerrancy, the scriptures are regarded as broader than the gospel. Beyond their content of law and gospel, there remains the rest of scripture. The scriptures also contain information about other matters. Christians must also accept matters taught in the scriptures which are not a part of the gospel. Thus, in the mind of the dross—that that is, those who believe in inerrancy, the message which Christians must accept to be true Christians is more than Christ alone. It is more than the gospel of the gracious justification of the sinner through faith in Jesus Christ. Anything and everything that the scriptures teach now belongs to our synods, faith, and confession. Redshire, in his distinction between the word of God as understood by the believers in inerrancy as against the minority for whom he is speaking, says this Not all of scripture has to do with the gospel Luther's definition of the word of God had to do only with Christ and the gospel Those who apply the term the word of God to all of scripture are mistaken His conclusion is obvious Whatever is not of the gospel may have error in it and to extend the meaning of the term the word of God to all of scripture is wrong and misleading. He wishes to limit the term to what is to be found in some of the Bible, but not all of the Bible, only a part of it. Though so he writes that the school of thought he represents, which opposes inerrancy, understands the inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of the scriptures in terms of the gospel. They found this understanding of the word to be both scriptural and confessional. By it, they affirmed their loyalty to Article 2 of the Synod's Constitution without reservation. Scripture is indeed the written word of God and the only rule and norm of faith and of practice. The sum of it is this. Whatever has to do with the gospel in the Bible is inspired and can be trusted. Whatever does not have to do with the gospel has error in it. It is not inerrant. This, of course, leaves it up to those who hold this view to decide what parts of the Bible have to do with gospel and what parts do not. And it ends up by assuming that whatever it is the individual wishes to disbelieve can be labeled as not part of the gospel. The allegations of Paul Breschner demand a response. He apparently is arguing that the Missouri Synod in 1932 and 1947 did something that is not in accord with the teaching and practice of Luther It is, he says, un-Lutheran to relate scripture and gospel in such a way that anyone must believe in biblical inerrancy. If, for the sake of argument, we concede that his point is valid, it still is possible to show that he has no leg to stand on. What is there to prevent the people of the Synod from improving on Luther himself, if they so choose? or from carrying out in this generation the implications of what Luther taught at a time when biblical inerrancy was not a pivotal issue, or of standing firm with Luther on his basic presupposition that it is from Scripture alone we get our religious data. And in following through on this to show they are merely saying that the Bible itself, which is the source of their religious faith, teaches biblical inerrancy. Since Luther and the Synod both agree on the principle sola scriptura, are not the opponents of biblical inerrancy wrong when they refuse to believe what Scripture teaches about itself? What the Missouri Synod has done in its brief statement is not something new. It has been part and parcel of the Synod's views since it was founded in the United States. Brescher was raised in this environment. If he personally believes that the Synod has erred in demanding adherence to an infallible scripture, and he cannot convince the Synod that it is wrong, he is free to remove to another Lutheran group more to his liking. So long as he wishes to remain within the Synod, he is bound by his ordination oath to believe, teach, and propagate what the Synod is committed to. He has every right to change his views and to depart from Synodical teachings. He has no right to remain within the church when he does this. We need to explore what it means to be a Lutheran, keeping in mind what Martin E. Marty said about who Lutherans are. If a man denies what a Lutheran church teaches, is he truly Lutheran? Let me illustrate this. Suppose Bretcher denies the deity of Christ, the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and his second coming. Does he then have any claim to the title Lutheran? Does he have any right to remain with the church that calls itself Lutheran? More than that, does a Lutheran church not have the right to exclude from its fellowship those who deny the truth that their confession says a Lutheran believes? Does a church have a right to permit those who disbelieve Lutheran teaching to remain in its fellowship? Does not the presence of those who disbelieve Lutheran teachings almost surely guarantee further infection in the church and at last the loss of the church to historic Lutheranism in all its deaf name? Since any church has the right to determine what its own confessional standards shall be, men like Brescher have no right to deny those teachings or to defy the authority of the church that has set up those standards. This is an ethical issue that cannot be avoided. The great weakness of Brecher's case is that he misunderstands Luther, and this misunderstanding stems from the need to believe that his ordination oath, properly understood, enables him to dissent from traditional Missouri Synod teaching. His situation might possibly be legitimate if his allegation about Luther's teaching happens to be accurate, but it isn't. In the chapter on the teaching of the church through the ages about infallibility, statements were quoted to show that Luther believed in an infallible Bible. It is hardly possible for any scholar to say that this is not true. There is too much evidence in its favor. Who can read what Luther said in the sermon of John 3.16 and refuse to agree that he believed in biblical infallibility? Here are his words. If a different way to heaven existed, no doubt God would have recorded it, but there is no other way. Therefore let us cling to these words, firmly place and rest our hearts upon them, close our eyes, and say, Although I have the merit of all the saints, the holiness and purity of all virgins, and the piety of St. Peter himself, I would still consider my attainment nothing. Rather, I must have a different foundation to build on, namely these words, God has given His Son so that whosoever believes in Him whom the Father's love has sent shall be saved. And you must confidently insist that you will be preserved. And you must boldly take your stand on His words which no devil, hell, or death can suppress. Therefore, no matter what happens, you should say, There is God's word. This is my rock and anchor. On it I shall rely, and it remains. Where it remains... I too remain where it goes I too go the word and he is not talking about the gospel he is talking about the written word of God not the incarnate word must stand for God cannot lie and heaven and earth must go to ruins before the most insignificant letter or tittle of his word and to make this apply to Christ would make nonsense of what Luther is saying remains unfulfilled end of quote Bretcher's case, even if it were true, which it is not, that the word of God means the Spirit's proclamation of grace in Christ to sinners, and that to believe in biblical inerrancy is not part of the gospel, is poles apart from Martin Luther. For Luther affirmed his belief in the Bible as free from error in the whole and in the part. If Luther did so in his day, no one has any right to suppose that he would approve of someone like Bretcher coming along today claiming the opposite. Indeed, the Missouri Synod is most Lutheran in standing for a belief about the scriptures that is no different from that which was entertained by Luther himself. Keller on Adam and Eve Relating scripture to law and gospel as part of the Missouri struggle can be seen by listening to another writer who makes it plainer than Bretcher. Professor Walter E. Keller, chairman of the Department of Theology at Valparaiso, wrote in the crescent of that institution saying I cannot say that the distinction between law and the gospel will answer the question as to whether Adam and Eve were historical but that distinction releases me from the burden of having to say that Adam and Eve must have been historical they may have been from the viewpoint of the distinction between the law and the gospel the question of their historicity is an indifferent matter In a nutshell, what the Missouri liberals are saying is that it does not matter if the Bible contains error, since error does not invalidate the message of law and gospel. God can also work through error. Whether what happened was historical makes no difference. Theirs is a theology that sees all the intention of scripture in a gospel understanding only, thereby making unimportant the historicity of the narrative described. Tietjen at Concordia When President Tietchen was defending Professor Arliss Ellen of the Concordia Seminary faculty in St. Louis, he revealed clearly the real state of affairs at the seminary. Ellen, when explaining his position on angels, wrote, In this matter, as in all others connected with biblical exegesis, I am concerned to be totally faithful to the intention of the divine author. I accept, in connection with the Red Sea crossing of the Israelites, what the sacred writers evidently intended by their elaboration of the miraculous details, namely, to magnify the glory of God's great act of salvation and to heighten its impact on those who hear in faith. In this case, too, my ultimate concern, therefore, is to be faithful to the intended meaning of the biblical text. So Tietjen could write, I have had a number of doctrinal discussions with Dr. Ellen in recent months. In those discussions he has specifically affirmed the authority of scripture in its entirety and in all its parts. He has stated that he affirms the facticity of what the scripture intends to present as facts. In all of this, the use and meaning of the word intended is what makes the difference. Both Ellen and Yetchen knew and understood that by the use of this device, they were saying they do not think that Scripture intends to present as a fact what the clear sense of Scripture presents as a fact. By this methodology, the historicity and facticity of anything in Scripture can be destroyed. The Historical Critical Methodology In the Concordia Seminary dispute, the use of the historical critical method was high on the agenda. Some of the defenders of this methodology declared that it is neutral. Thietjin, the president at that time, stated flatly that it would not be possible to operate a department of exegetical theology at a graduate school without the use of the historical critical methodology. He said this despite the fact that there are graduate schools where it is not in use. Robert Prius of his faculty stated that most of the members of the Concordia faculty use the method, but it leads to a rejection of many of the miracles, the temptation story, and the details of the story of Jesus, baptism, including the descent of the dove and the voice of God from heaven. Professor Dean Owenth, of Concordia Seminary at Springfield wrote that the historical critical method is not a neutral tool, but rather a very special instrument that is inseparable from its own presuppositions, procedures, and results. As one surveys the anti-supernaturalistic presuppositions, the secular procedures, and the far-reaching results, it becomes obvious that a wedding between the bride and Lutheran presuppositions is as impossible as the marriage of light and darkness. The situation at Concordia at St. Louis and the Missouri Synod has advanced far beyond that of Fuller Seminary, which has only gone so far as to reject inerrancy in principle. This can be illustrated by the support and use of the historical critical methodology which men at Fuller repudiate. Professor George E. Ladd of Fuller read a paper at the 25th Anniversary Celebration of Interpretation, a journal of Bible and Theology, the publication of Union Theological Seminary of Richmond, Virginia, a Presbyterian U.S. institution. In his paper, Dr. Ladd said, If one's view of history is such that he cannot acknowledge a divine plan of salvation unfolding in historical events, then he cannot accept the witness of the Bible. The point we are stressing is that the historical critical method denies the role of transcendence in the history of Jesus as well as in the Bible as a whole, not as a result of scientific study of the evidences but because of its philosophical presuppositions about the nature of history. The historical critical method excludes by definition that which I believe. End of quote. Ladd is correct in his assertions that the use of the historical critical method to be found among Southern Baptists as well as among Missouri Synod Lutherans is based on presuppositions that destroy historical orthodoxy. Orthodoxy and the historical critical method are deadly enemies that are antithetical and cannot be reconciled without the destruction of one or the other. Before J.A.O. Prius became president of the Synod in 1969, His predecessor, Oliver Harms, constantly defended the seminary at St. Louis and repeatedly assured the denomination that all was well there. Dr. Harms was a well-meaning man whose reassurances were based on statements he had received from the seminary presidents. Since he was not particularly discerning and displayed no particular acuity concerning the issues at stake, he was taken in. He spoke either out of ignorance or lack of understanding, but in any event he served the purposes of the neoliberals in the denomination. The Janzau Survey. Walter Janzau, the president of Seward Concordia, earned a doctorate in sociology at the University of Nebraska in nineteen seventy. His dissertation entitled Secularization in an Orthodox Denomination provided statistical data that show the Missouri Synod indeed has a real problem on its hand. Dr. Janzow made a detailed study of the theological learnings of what he called Missouri's elite, the laity, and the parish clergy. The results were revealing. Eighty-nine percent of Missouri's laity fell into the upper range of theological orthodoxy. Eighty-two percent of Missouri's parish clergy were found there. Only 69% of the elite, which included people at the headquarters and at the seminaries and schools, belonged there. Of the elite, only 51% accepted the Bible as the inspired and inerrant Word of God, whereas 65% of the parish clergy and 83% of the laity did. When the statistics were broken down into age groups, Janzau reported that members of our elite less than 35 years old, like the parish clergy of this age group, accept inspiration and inerrancy to an even smaller degree. Only 35% agree with the inerrancy doctrine. 78% of the lay people, however, in this group accept it. If history has any lesson to teach, it is that defection from inerrancy generally takes place in the educational institutions and then spreads from there. In the case of the Missouri Lutherans, it appears to have resulted from postgraduate studies pursued by men trained in Missouri schools who then secured doctorates in secular or liberal institutions. They were enamored of the historical critical method, and numbers of them left their old moorings with respect to biblical infallibility. More frequently than not, men of this kind of training did not go into the parish ministry, but headed for institutions where the possibility existed to disseminate this newfound learning among younger minds that could easily be influenced away from historic Missouri viewpoints. In addition, this kind of mind enjoyed teaching these new and attractive but irregular doctrines through the literature of the denomination. So they became editors and writers for church school materials in 1971 a firm reported that in the teacher's manual the layman's bible commentary series on the gospel according to St. Mark volume 17 the writer said pages 40-41 to the triumphant entry into Jerusalem is symbolical narrative for Mark was not inclined to force episode into arbitrary harmony with his editorial plan Introducing the Bible Bible 1 says It is not essential that everyone reads the Bible Do not expect particular blessing from God Because you read the Bible Do not seek answers to the questions in your life Throwing people into the Bible And telling them to read it Is no more sensible than throwing the child into deep water Hoping he will swim You do not need opening and closing prayer The laws which God's self-disclosure gave to Israel Are not unchangeable and forever valid. God's self-disclosure, particularly in Jesus Christ, is new to every social situation. The writer did not think about himself as writing Scripture or Bible. End of quote. J. A. O. Prius, Missouri's president. The coming of J. A. O. Prius to the presidency of the Missouri Synod in 1969 was a kind of watershed. It seemed clear enough that the majority of Missouri Lutherans were unhappy about the trend in their church and wanted to do something about it. Dr. Prius knew that the Concordia St. Louis Seminary was the major source of disaffection. Dr. Tietjen had become president of that institution in a most unorthodox fashion. Once it was known that Dr. Prius might become president of the Synod, the neoliberals worked to secure the appointment of Tietjen as president of the seminary at St. Louis. He was a minority candidate by far, and protocol was bent to make him president before Prius became the title or head of the denomination. Once Prius became president of the Synod, he went to work on the seminary. Tietjen and his supporters regarded this as persecution, whereas Prius believed he had a mandate to clean up the problem. When the showdown came at the seminary in St. Louis, Tietjen was removed from his office. Whatever may have been his objections, the fact remains that he was removed legally and in accord with normal denominational machinery. But Tietchan refused to take his defeat sitting down, nor was he to regard it as final. He established a seminary in exile, Seminex, headed by himself, staffed by faculty members who, like him, were supporters of the historical critical method and were disbelievers in biblical inerrancy. He gained the support of the Association of Theological Schools on the grounds that academic liberty was at stake. This was a charade, for even the Association had always agreed that every denomination has the right to decide what shall be taught at its institutions. To do this is theoretically an infringement of academic liberty, but it is the only safeguard that guarantees the integrity of a denomination. Once the spurious claims of academic liberty prevails, license then makes possible the propagation of viewpoints opposed to the denomination standards. The result is suicidal. Tietchen did what was contrary to Missouri's church order. This was divisive. But the machinery of the liberal-dominated Association of Theological Schools and later the secular machinery of the American Association of University Professors came to Tietchen's aid. The St. Louis seminary was put on probation by the Association of Theological Schools and the AAUP castigated the institution. Meanwhile, Tietchen's liberal friends provided housing for his new seminary and a new church organization was set up called ELIM. If the situation had been reversed and the liberals had gained the office of the presidency of the synod The creation of a conservative seminary in exile and the setting up of a new church organization would have been roundly denounced by liberals everywhere. And we can be sure that accreditation by the Association of Theological Schools of a new conservative school would never have followed. Ecclesiological or Theological Struggle Tietjen loudly proclaimed that the issue was not so much theological as ecclesiological. It was a struggle for power and control of the denomination. In a sense, this was true. He and his followers tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to gain control of the machinery of the church. So did Prius and his followers. Prius succeeded, Tietjen failed but the effort to control the denominational machinery by both sides was brought about by the theological questions that had become more and more prominent in the life of the Missouri Synod. Redshire, as we have seen, and he sided with Tietchen, acknowledged that Missouri has a problem. He described the nature of the problem, and he is aware that the issue will be decided at last by whoever controls the machinery of the denomination. History tells us that in the fundamentalist-modernist controversy in the 20s, the fundamentalists lost because the modernists gained control of the ecclesiastical machinery as well as the theological seminaries. It was a decisive combination. At any time after J.A.O. Prius became president of the Synod, Tietjen and his fellow faculty members could have come to terms with Prius. All they needed to do was to accept without mental reservation the brief statement of the doctrinal position of the Missouri Synod of 1932 that has been in existence for almost half a century. This was the statement that was reaffirmed in 1947. This was the statement on which Prius took his stand. The statement fairly and accurately reflected what has always been the stand of the Missouri Synod, The decision to put it in writing in a more specific way in 1932 highlighted the signs in the Synod of a move away from Missouri's historic position. Prius was not out to change the position of the Synod. He intended to reinforce it and to see that it was kept honestly by those who were committed to do so in their ordination vows but neither Tietchen nor the dissident members of the faculty have shown any willingness to assent to the brief statement and to propagate its teaching in the seminary. This failure in itself is the strongest evidence that Tietchen was beclouding the issue when he argued that it was an ecclesiological and not a theological issue that was at the heart of the matter. Christianity Today published an article by John Tietchen In it, he accused Prius of using the slogan, They are taking your Bible away, effectively. He called it a smokescreen. But he admitted that there are genuine issues, and they increase in number with each passing month. In fact, the very soul of the Synod is at stake. And with that assessment, anyone in and out of the Synod can agree. J.A.O. Prius would also agree with that observation. Jergen said much the same thing that Brecher said, quote, "The word of God is the message of God's judgment and of his promise. Everything in the Bible is either a word of law that condemns or a word of promise that saves. In its proper sense, the word of God is good news about God in action to save. Preeminently, the word of God is Jesus Christ himself." End of quote. And while all of this may be true in some measure, it is also true that the word of God is more than Tietchan says it is. It is what Luther proclaimed, the written word that is wholly inerrant in all its parts. But this is not what Tietchan believes, nor do those associated with him. Walter A. Mayer pinpoints the problem. No one perceived more clearly what the issue was than the late Walter A. Mayer. In a short article on the historical critical method of Bible study, written long before Preyus became president of the Synod, he said, Most of the scholars who use the historical critical method based their analysis of the biblical text on certain rationalistic, anti-scriptural presuppositions, anti-supernaturalism, for example. They flatly reject the possibility of divine intervention and miraculous action in human affairs they also operate with various arbitrary, unwarranted assumptions, such as the unreasonable bias that many biblical accounts, which purport to, do not really present factual history. As a result, their interpretations often subvert the obvious meaning of clear scripture passages, and the theological views they express often do not conform to the word of God. Then Dr. Mayer gave some examples. Number one. When the New Testament evangelists composed their gospels, they simply took over traditional short stories about Jesus, which had been circulating in Palestinian Christian communities, and worked these into running gospel accounts. Practically all references to time and place are of the evangelist's invention and do not supply authentic information about the life of Jesus. Two. The miracles reported in the gospels did not actually occur. Three. Many of the sayings attributed to Jesus were never spoken by him at all. 4. The Gospels contain many legends and myths, pure fabrications, which were given their form in the interest of the cultists and for purposes of edification. Mythological and legendary material, which is the product of pious fancy and active Christian imagination, is seen in the following Gospel accounts. The Narrative of Jesus' Baptism The narrative of Christ's temptation in the wilderness, the transfiguration narrative, the narrative of the Last Supper, the passion narrative, and the resurrection narrative. Liberal theologians regard it as one of the functions of form critical investigation to help the 20th century reader to demythologize the New Testament scriptures and thus to get down to what really happened at the time of Christ and early Christianity. Additional, incredible, and indeed blasphemous views arising from the modern scholarly use of historical critical methodology could be cited. End of quote. Walter A. Mayer, an able scholar, put his finger on the pulse of Missouri's problem. He was writing to support his church's stand on an inerrant scripture. He knew that in every large denomination where this battle had been fought, believers in inerrancy had lost but the battle has not yet been lost in his denomination. Instead of the believers in inerrancy leaving the church, the disbelievers have been doing so. History teaches us that the outcome is by no means assured, but men like Mayer know that, at least for the time being, believers in inerrancy have control of the denomination. Whether they can retain this control and whether they will take the steps necessary to do so, only time will tell. The present struggle in this large and formerly theologically orthodox denomination simply points up the thesis of this book. The Missouri Synod situation is one indication of the existence of anti-inerrancy forces in evangelical denominations and organizations that have traditionally opted for biblical infallibility. Page 89, Chapter 5, The Southern Baptist Convention Through the years, the Southern Baptist Convention, like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has been numbered among the large denominations that have remained faithful to the scriptures. The term Bible Belt has been applied as a kind of slur to the people south of the Mason-Dixon line. Rather, it should be thought of as a compliment, for probably no other geographical region in the United States has had a better record for belief in the infallibility of the word of God. And no group has done any better in this regard than the Southern Baptists. The Southern Baptists were not among those denominations that were seriously affected by the modernist-fundamentalist controversy earlier this century. There were a number of reasons why this was so. Not many of their seminary and college teachers had received their doctorates from overseas universities or from liberal institutions in the North. The Southern Baptists were so large that they became a kind of self-contained unit that had all of the educational tools within the denomination. This meant that the outside influences were marginal. As part of the Bible Belt, geographically, they were more immune to the liberal forces at work in Northern America, forces that were to change the theological landscape the Southern Baptists were strongly evangelistic and this provided protection from the inroads of unbelief. And the people who were part of the denominational machinery were themselves theologically conservative and tended to perpetuate conservatism in their appointments to boards and agencies of the denomination. However, significant changes have taken place in recent years that suggest that what happened to other denominations decades ago can happen to Southern Baptists. Seeds of dissent have been planted and are sprouting in many places among them. The Confession of 1925 Although the Southern Baptists were not seriously affected by the modernist fundamentalist controversy, this did not mean they were unaware of what was happening around them. This we know from what their convention did in 1925. The most complete statement of faith ever considered by Southern Baptists was adopted by that convention. Basically, the statement they voted for was the New Hampshire Confession of Faith that had been in existence for nearly 100 years. The Articles of Faith they accepted were later reaffirmed from time to time and still are believed by most Southern Baptists. Among the Articles was one on the Scriptures. It reads, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is the record of God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. End of quote. Even a cursory reading of that part of the statement on Scripture that says the Bible has God for its author and truth without any mixture of error for its matter must lead to the conclusion that the entire Bible is free from error. Of that there can be no doubt, either historically, exegetically, or practically. Thus the efforts of some today to limit infallibility to matters of faith and practice so as to exclude historical, scientific, and other items would destroy the obvious meaning and intent of the article on Scripture. Limited infallibility also means that not all of Scripture is infallible, but is mixed with error. And those parts that have errors in them constitute inspired errors allowed by the Holy Spirit or parts of Scripture that are not inspired at all. Southern Baptists have been infected. In this book I am dealing with the question of biblical infallibility and must now produce the hard evidence to enforce the claim that the Southern Baptist Convention has numbers of people in it who deny biblical infallibility. They are challenging the historic position of the denomination and constitute a threat to its future. Not only so, but it will be shown that some who have abandoned biblical inerrancy have also abandoned other cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith so that, in any historic sense, they have ceased to be Baptists as understood traditionally.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.